The murder spike may be starting to recede. Plus, author Mark Smith weighs in on the Supreme Court's new Second Amendment case. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now if you want to keep up with what's going on with guns in America. This week, we are talking about a major development at the Supreme Court where they have decided to take up a new gun case. And so with me, I have Mark Smith back again for the second time on the show. He's an author, uh, host of The Four Boxes Diner on YouTube. And a member of the Supreme Court Bar. Is that right, Mark? That's right. Uh, and what does that mean exactly? Can you tell people just a little bit more well, about you know, your in order to here? submit briefs or to be heard by the United States Supreme Court, you have to be a member of the Supreme Court Bar. I was actually sponsored by the former Solicitor General and Federal Judge Kenneth Starr, uh, who many of you probably remember from the Whitewater investigation days. That's how Ken Starr is most famously known to the public. But right. to the Supreme Court Bar, you know, Ken was viewed as really the 10th justice for many years when he was the Solicitor General for the first Bush administration. It was considered a very serious constitutional scholar and judge in his day on the D.C. Court of Appeals, a uh, very serious guy. Um, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He passed away about five or six months ago. Uh, terrible loss to the uh, conservative originalist uh, movement. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, hopefully he's moved on to greener pastures and all that. But yes, uh, so yes, I can submit materials. I can argue before the U.S. Supreme Court bar and you have to be sponsored to do so, among other criteria. Um, right. And that allows me to have some conversations about the Supreme Court, which I presume we're going to be doing today. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you know what you're talking about, I think, is the bottom line here. Um, and you obviously, the Four Boxes Diner is a Second Amendment focused channel that has gotten some pretty good popularity on YouTube since you've started. Well, congratulations on that, by the way. Um, Thanks. Well, I, you know, I like to give this information from the inside because, you know, a lot of the Second Amendment, it's an unusual part because so much of gun law and the Second Amendment and our rights are tied up in the court system. Uh, mm -hmm. But very few people have spent a lot of time in court. And by the way, that's a good thing. Being in court is not a good thing as a general matter. Uh, I'm unusual in that I've spent many, you know, literally decades in, in courts all across America at the highest levels of the society. And I really have a feel for, you know, how judges think. I used to work for a judge as a law clerk right out of law school. Uh, so I really have a sense of, of this good, bad, and ugly. And I try to on my channel, Stephen, you'll talk. I don't want to just talk about the Pollyannish good news. Sometimes there's bad news or bad developments that we have to talk about and try to deal with. Uh, and I try to use my channel as a way to convey the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Second Amendment. The good news is for the last few years, we've had a lot of huge wins and a lot of good stuff going on for our right to keep and bear arms. But of course, nothing's perfect. Uh, as I say in sports, you know, there are no shutouts in litigation. Uh, you know, there are no shutouts in war. Uh, you win battles, you lose battles, and ultimately you hope to prevail in the overall war. And that's, I do think we are at war over our right to keep and bear arms. There are people out there that want to take us and, and literally take away all of our arms and turn us from uh, citizens into subjects and serfs. And that is not something I subscribe to. I believe we should be citizens. I believe we are citizens. And I hope to uh, fight to maintain uh, the fact that we are citizens here in the United States. Right. You, and you obviously certainly have your point of view on uh, the Second Amendment and what the, the right interpretation of it is. But I, one of the things that I enjoy about your channel and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I think you offer a, a good nuanced perspective. Yes, you have a point of view that you come from, but you're able to analyze these situations 
um, uh, in, a, in an honest way. And that's that's what I wanted to have you on. And we're going to talk about Great. Rahimi, United States v. Rahimi is the case that the Supreme Court has taken up. This is uh, a case that involves some not a great guy. I think that's one of the consensus views. I've talked to a lot of experts about this. We've got more reporting on it over at the Reload if people want to read from some some of the other experts out there who uh, I've reached out to for this. We'll probably have some more on, on in the future, too. It's going to be several months before this case gets litigated further. But, uh, you know, the, there's he's not a good guy. That's that's established. He's accused of uh, uh, um, violence against his child's mother is why the restraining order was issued against him. Um, and then he's accused of a number of other crimes that aren't related to this case, but sort of establish what kind of person he is, multiple shootings, um, you know, drug dealing, so on and so forth. But his case is specifically about um, whether or not somebody who is subject to a domestic violence restraining order can be barred from owning guns under the Second Amendment. Right. That's is that the basic question as you see it? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals down there in Louisiana, Texas said, that federal statute, and it's going to be very important this is a federal statute, we'll talk about why in a few minutes, but 18 U.S.C. 922G is a provision of the federal code that explains those people that are what are known as prohibited people. And there's a list of them. There's about nine or ten different categories. The number one category that, Stephen, we always talk about is the felon possession. That is someone that has been convicted of a felony as defined by the statute, which is uniquely defined and broadly so, whether or not they have a firearm. If, they, if you are convicted of a felony and subsequently have a firearm, you are committing a federal crime, even if the underlying felony is, let's say, a state crime. Now, what's interesting about the Rahimi case is that contrary to what you would think the United States Department of Justice would want a clarification of, which is whether or not the bread and butter every single day in America, like 26,000 times a year or whatever it is, someone is convicted under 922 G1, which is the felon in possession. But here's the interesting thing. Did Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice for Joe Biden laser focus and try to get the Supreme Court to hear a 922 G1 case involving felons in possession of firearms? the bread and butter routine thing that U.S. attorney's offices see every day in America? They did not. What did they do? Instead, they laser focused on this Rahimi case. Now, Rahimi, like you mentioned, Stephen, refers to a different part of 922G, specifically 922G8, I believe it is, that says that if you are subject to a domestic violence restraining order, that's what it's labeled, you're not allowed to have a gun during the pendency of that restraining order. Now, keep in mind that in the context of a 922-1 G1, which is the felon position, you've been at least convicted of a crime. In contrast, if you are subject to a 922-G8 restraining order, you have not necessarily been subject to or convicted of a crime or anything. You're just subject to a restraining order that involves you and someone that's an intimate partner, could be a wife, ex-wife, ex-girlfriend, a child, someone in the home, right? Somebody connected to you domestically. And that, that could be almost rubber stamped anywhere in America that simply says that you and your intimate partner, your ex-spouse, whatever it is, 
you have to go to each you each have to go to a separate corner. Neither of you can get close to each other. You're going to talk through lawyers. That's it. That's what we're going to do. These are entered every day all across America. One of the issues here is, of course, these are done without any kind of, in most instances, any kind of real procedural protections of anyone's liberty, including the right to keep and bear arms. So what's interesting right off the bat is why did Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice want to push a 922G Eight case, of which, by the way, there's approximately 200 or so convictions every year in America. So why are they trying to focus on a part of 922G that is rarely used, rarely used in the federal system, and as opposed to laser focus on something that's used every day? And we know why, because DOJ thinks that the fact that the Rahimi, Mr. Rahimi, allegedly is a bad guy involved in five shootings, that's going to somehow sway the Supreme Court to ignore the law, to ignore the Constitution, and to somehow bend over backwards to find a way to make Mr. Rahimi lose, and in the process of ensuring that Mr. Rahimi loses, by extension, screw up in some pro-gun, pro-anti-gunner way, right, the Bruin methodology to screw up the Second Amendment jurisprudence that right now is very favorable to the Second Amendment and to gun rights enthusiasts and proponents, and somehow screw all that methodology up so that in the future, all sorts of gun control laws that should be struck down will not be because the Supreme Court will have bent over backwards to try to make Rahimi lose. That is the gamble that Merrick Garland wanted to take and has taken and forced upon the Supreme Court rather than seeking cert on an emergency basis of some of those other cases, like the range case in the Third Circuit, dealing with a felon in possession case where a guy 20 years ago was convicted of a food stamp violation under state law in Pennsylvania, has never committed any kind of crime since, no evidence of violence at any point in his life. And yet, coincidentally, strangely enough, Merrick Garland has not sought cert in that case, even though that deals with the traditional typical 922 G1, which is ubiquitous in contrast to the rare 922 G8. Yes. Uh, so uh, this is another, I think, point of consensus. Obviously, not all the, the different experts that I spoke with uh, would phrase it this way, right? But I think they all agreed that this was a, sort of a strategic litigation on the part of the Department of Justice and the Attorney General uh, to try and get a, a case in front of the court that uh, might be more favorable towards them, uh, or you know, more favorable towards upholding this particular restriction and maybe uh, shedding light on the Bruin test in a way that uh, broadens uh, where. You know, what gun laws are applicable, right? And then, so that that's kind of what you're getting at here, right? And this seems to be the general agreement that this is a this is a case that is um, strategically beneficial to the president and other gun control advocates uh, because of the details of the plaintiff um, and, and the nature of domestic violence restraining orders. Um, it may not have an actual analog as required under. Bruin, and so the court might have to broaden its interpretation of what an analogy even is in order to uphold this restriction. Do you think that um, is where the court is going to go, though? Is that like, how do you see them t mm -hmm. handling this case? Well, here's the thing. This is a gamble. Let me be very clear about this, Stephen. This is a gamble on the part of the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland, because if you think about it, if the Supreme Court, and I, I remember the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals wrote a very powerful decision, and on that panel of the Fifth Circuit included Edith Jones. Now, Edith Jones very easily 
could have been on the U.S. Supreme Court. She is very well respected. She's been on the shortlist for the, she's now, frankly, too old to get on the Supreme Court because now they only pick people in their 40s now. That seems to be the trend. But back in the day, Edith Jones was so respected, she was repeatedly on the shortlist to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. You also have this powerful concurrence by Judge James Ho, who is considered an up-and-comer. And if you have a President DeSantis or President Trump or whatnot in 2024 and to 2028, you're going to see names like James Ho and others uh, on that shortlist for a Supreme Court vacancy if that were to pop up. So it's a very serious, earnest panel, and the Supreme Court knows this. The reason why I mention this, Stephen, is if the Fifth Circuit's reason rationale is upheld by the Supreme Court, and there's a real chance that's going to happen, it's actually going to turn out that Merrick Garland's gamble will have blown up in his face hugely. Because if you think about it, if you find in favor of uh, Rahimi in this case, and with a robust interpretation of the application of the Second Amendment and the like, the way the Fifth Circuit did, you actually will wake up, if you're Merrick Garland and the Biden Department of Justice, much, much worse off than you are today. And that is not an outcome uh, that is impossible by any stretch, because the Fifth Circuit certainly blew up uh, you know, the federal law and involving gun control, and the Supreme Court may well, very well do the same. It is not a slam dunk for DOJ. Right. And and so uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown about exactly what the Fifth Circuit did find? Because, uh, you know, some of the poor analysis I've seen, not from any of the experts that I spoke to, but, it's, you know, in media, what, I, what I've seen is basically this idea that, well, domestic violence was not considered a societal problem in the same way that it is today back during the founding era. And so there weren't any laws at all that pertained really to domestic violence. And so therefore, uh, Bruin's test uh, says you you can't have any gun restrictions based on domestic violence, but that's not really what the Fifth Circuit said, right? They, they, their analysis was not that simplistic or uh, kind of obtuse, right? They, they did a, a significantly more thorough job looking at this than that, right? Yeah, I think to, to sort of keep it simple, the Fifth Circuit signed off on two longstanding prohibitions or bases for disarming Americans of their Second Amendment rights. The first kind of category of those that have been convicted or involved in the criminal justice system, including, you know, potentially um, if you've been indicted but haven't been convicted yet, you could potentially be, be forced to give up your gun rights to get out on bail. So the Fifth Circuit laser focus and said, if obviously you're part of the criminal justice system, you've been convicted of a violent crime, you've been put in prison, any of these things, you obviously... We have the right, we have the governmental has the authority to take away your right to bear arms, just the way we have the right to take away your liberty and put you in prison for life or to sentence you to death. So if you're convicted in the context of the criminal justice system, that is obviously perfectly fine. That is not any kind of a Second Amendment issue whatsoever. That's longstanding historical regulations to say if you misuse a firearm at the time of the founding to commit a rape, a robbery, or murder, guess what? Not only can they take away your gun rights away, they can take away your liberty and your life. So there's no debate about that. Then you have, on the other hand, uh, the civil commitment stuff. Remember, one of the other aspects of 922G is if you've been committed uh, through a process, if you've been involuntarily committed uh, to a mental health facility, meaning, you know, you have been deemed to be uh, a danger to yourself or a danger to others through a process, which is often referred to you, you kind of use as the Baker Act under Florida, but it's kind of referred to these Baker Acts, which basically is the process by which courts 
uh, after a robust hearing with experts, mental health professionals, lawyers, and the whole shebang, you've been deemed to be a danger to yourself or to others, and they put you in a mental health facility for treatment or whatever it is, then, of course, that basically is acceptable under longstanding uh, you know, American law, and you can be disarmed there as well in the same way we can take away your liberty. What the Fifth Circuit said is when you look specifically at the Rahimi case, and here's something to understand about high-end lawyering, the old saying and higher end lawyer is this, that a high end lawyer is someone that can take things that are inextricably linked and delink them in their mind and analyze them separately. So here, what the Fifth Circuit did is the following. They said, if you look at the timeline of Mr. Rahimi's situation, at the moment, at the moment that he agreed to, without the benefit of counsel, mind you, when he agreed to the entry of this restraining order, by a family court judge or civil judge down there in Texas. At that moment in time, he had not been convicted of any crime or anything like that. He may have been suspected of committing a crime, but he hadn't been convicted of anything. So the Fifth Circuit says, we're going to focus like good lawyers do and like good judges do at that moment in time where he has not been convicted of a crime. He's not been civilly committed as mentally ill. He is simply being subject to a ordinary domestic restraining order, which are entered, handed out like candy in the criminal in the, in the justice system every day and virtually every divorce case and every fight over children and every fight over who owns the house. These things happen all the time, not to mention the red flag law, which this could potentially influence. You know what the Fifth Circuit said is at that moment in time, he had not been subject to any of this stuff. He simply can see, says, I will enter. Um, I will agree to the entry of this restraining order. And here's the thing, Stephen, this is really getting super geeky. But if you look carefully at the statutory language of 922 G8 dealing with these restraining orders, and again, mind you, these are civil restraining orders. That's a very important word, right? Civil restraining orders. And that orders. was a big point that They're the Fifth Circuit focused on. The civil exactly aspect. right. Civil with a lot less due process protections and the like than you would see in a criminal case, which is very, very robustly protected, obviously. But the thing is, under 922 G8, there's two little subsections, either of which triggers a loss of your Second Amendment rights. One is that you are found by a court to be a threat to someone. You are literally found, like I've looked at all the evidence and I've concluded that you are indeed a threat to commit violence to yourself or to someone else, and therefore I'm going to restrain you based on the evidence in front of me. That's one aspect of that 922 G8. But the other aspect is what the Texas civil court did. Now, what is that other part? It's an either or, it's disjunctive. The court in this restraining order decision, as I understand it, I haven't looked at it, but this is my understanding from what I've heard, what I understand on the facts. It said that all it said was that Mr. Rahimi is not allowed to go near his ex-girlfriend and they're to remain apart. They're not allowed to harass each other. They're not allowed to beat each other up. They're not allowed to commit crimes or anything like that. And here's the thing. If you think about it, all that language says, Stephen, is it just reiterates the law as it exists right now without the benefit of a restraining order. I mean, I'm not allowed to go beat people up today. I'm not allowed to harass people today. I'm not allowed to stalk people today. Right. I'm not allowed to, like, you know, hit somebody over the basement with a head with a baseball bat. I'm not subject to a restraining order, but I still am not allowed to do that. So the question is, if you have a restraining order, 
which was the case in Mr. Rahimi's situation, that literally does nothing more than says, stay away from each other and follow the law and don't hit each other the head with bats and don't beat each other up and don't do any violence toward each other. What is that really saying specific to whether or not Mr. Rahimi himself is a danger to society? In many respects, it says nothing because all it's really doing is reiterating the existing law of the land in the form of restraining order, because you're not allowed to do those things anyway, even if there's no restraining order. And the Fifth Circuit laser focused on this and said, look, there was never a finding that Mr. Rahimi was specifically dangerous. It was just a restraining order that says he's not allowed to go close to and uh, you know misbehave and do bad things to his ex-girlfriend, which he shouldn't, obviously, but he's not allowed to do it anyway, even if he had no restraining order. And that's what the Fifth Circuit says. Well, this doesn't really say anything. It doesn't answer the critical question that we think has to be answered under the Second Amendment is, at a minimum, is someone like Mr. Rahimi a danger to himself or to someone else? Like you would have to find in the context of a criminal case or or a mental health case for civil commitment. It does none of the above. It's just simply almost a rubber stamp proceeding, which happens every day in America just for the good of the order. Uh, And judges, remember, judges always enter these restraining orders because they don't want anything bad to happen because if something bad happens, if they don't enter the restraining order and someone gets killed or something gets beat up, next thing they're going to be worried about is appearing on the cover of the newspaper as a judge that could have prevented the crime and didn't. And, you know, judges don't like that. I hate to say it because, you know, they have careers too. And the last thing they want to be is blamed for allowing something like that to happen. As a consequence, the presumption is if you deal with these judges is to really rubber stamp restraining orders because then they can't be blamed if something bad goes wrong, heaven forbid. Mm. Right. And and so, yeah, there's the civil... Uh, nature of it, the fact that there's not as much due process protections to, for one of these to be issued. There were, uh, you know, certainly Judge Ho, I think, went on at length about the uh, potential overuse of these sorts of uh, restraining orders in his uh, concurrence. Uh, they also, I didn't, they, I believe they also dive into this idea of, you know, they, they try to take a look at and, and reason by analogy at you know what's what what kind of restrictions would have been permissible um, at the at the founding era, and they found things like you perhaps dangerousness of groups uh, was one where you, you know because there were certainly bans on selling guns to uh, well on one hand to racial minorities and Native Americans and African Americans, uh, but also on the other hand people like loyalists or insurrectionists. Um, And uh, they determined that, you know, these sorts of categories could be banned because they represented a threat to society generally. Um, And then they found a determination or a distinction between that and restraining orders, nature of being targeted at individuals to protect other specific, specific individuals. Um, which was something I think uh, Adam Winkler, who's a UCLA professor uh, on the, I would say the other side of the aisle would be a fair way to describe him from you. Uh, and, but still very serious, um, you know, academic in this area, uh, which he, you know, he found issue with that. He said, it's, it's kind of absurd to make that sort of distinction that you could, if, if it was more about categorically banning somebody, it would be perhaps, kosher with the second amendment but uh because it's based on this individual aspect it's not uh, is that how do you read that whole section of the fifth circuit's uh opinion 
Well, I think the Fifth Circuit is it, it, to simplify things is really sort of conflating a couple things here, not necessarily wrongly, by the way, but just for the benefit of of people to understand what's going on. The way to sort of think about this from the viewer's point of view is you have substantive rights under the Second Amendment, but then you also have procedural protections. And I think that's the way just to help you understand uh, the viewers. You have substantive rights as set forth in the Second Amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms is really a substantive right. But then you have procedural process, which is the process by which perhaps people can be denied constitutional rights. And if you just think for a minute conceptually, In 1791, you have the adoption, ratification, and the gone into effect, the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights are 10 amendments. The First Amendment, of course, deals with the freedom of press, the freedom of free speech, and things like that. Obviously, the Second Amendment is the right of the people to keep merit shall not be infringed at the Second Amendment. But then you have these other procedural amendments about when can a government take away certain items, specifically, for example, the Fifth Amendment. Government may not take away your life your liberty, or your property without due process of law. That, by the way, was reiterated in the 14th Amendment in in, in 1868, which we're not going to have to get into in this case, because remember, this is a federal statute, um, which was, therefore, the Second Amendment applied to the federal government in 1791. So you don't even get into the debate we sometimes see with state laws about the role of the Fourteenth Amendment in the late nineteenth century. You're not going to have to get into that fight here, frankly, because again, 1791, Second Amendment applies and restricts the ability of Congress to act. So that's what we're talking about here. So I think the way to understand this is the Fifth Circuit kind of looked at two things kind of together. They said that under the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms, you're not allowed to disarm people. Uh, by these sort of civil restraining orders where there's been no finding of fact that the guy is a bad guy or or violent or anything at all whatsoever. They said there was no analogs that allowed that. But if you want to be, again, take things that are inextricably linked and delink them in one's mind, in one's mind, you again have the right of the you have the Second Amendment substantive right which means we have the right to have arms and have guns, but then you have procedural protections of that right that must be followed before they can take away certain things, I would argue, including but not limited to the right to keep merits, which is really, among other things, a liberty interest. So I think in some ways, um, in the Rahimi case, you're going to see discussions of both, both substantive Second Amendment rights and the process that goes into determining whether or not someone can lose them. Now, I'm going to throw a little curveball at you, Stephen, because uh, I think I'm the only one that has connected these dots, which I'm about to articulate. And that is this. The Range case out of the Third Circuit, and just to remind everyone, in the Range versus United States case, Brian Range brought a lawsuit saying that he should not be denied his right to keep and bear arms for life because 20 years ago, he alleged he lied and pled guilty to a state misdemeanor that he went to get food stamps and failed to disclose like his lawn mowing income. He was found guilty of a misdemeanor, but because under that Pennsylvania misdemeanor statute, he theoretically under the law could have gone to prison for over two years. That technically is a felony by definition under 922 G1. Yes. Even though Mr. Range, I don't think served. He never, yeah, he never served any jail time. And Not I think a it was single like day. A, a $3,000 fine, I believe. Exactly right. So the Third Circuit on Bach came out with a very powerful ruling. This is Mr. Range gets his gun rights back that this is he's not dangerous. That is the key. And he's not dangerous. The government didn't even try, couldn't even show it. And therefore, so here's the interesting thing that could happen. 
And that is, I could see a situation where the Supreme Court grants cert later this year to the Range case and decides the Range case and the Rahimi case. And again, this is getting super geeky here, but I could see a situation where the, the Supreme Court lays out the real Second Amendment standards of dangerousness versus the anti-gunner view of virtuousness, right? If you don't respect the law because you don't recycle properly, we get to take your, your gun rights, which is the view of the anti-gun movement, by the way. So that notion, I could see the range case resolving the substantive Second Amendment question, while the Rahimi case may focus on the procedural process by which the government must follow to take away one Second Amendment substantive rights. Now, again, am I saying this is 100% going to happen? I'm not, but I'm saying there's a lot more moving parts here. And a lot of this could be bad for the anti-gun movement because there's a lot of legal questions that have arisen in the last 12 months since Bruin that the Supreme Court may very well wind up cleaning up. So, for example, the anti-gunners work really hard trying to say that in the definition of the people, as in the right of the people to keep in their arms, they're trying to add the words, the modifying words of law abiding. So what the anti-gunners are arguing in court, by and large, as I can tell, is that the people that are protected are only those that are law abiding. But that's not what the Supreme Court said in Heller. The, the Supreme Court says that all the people in the United States have the right to keep in their arms. And you can only take those away by virtue of looking at historical legal analogs. But the anti-gunners are trying to conflate this. And this is going to be an opportunity for the Supreme Court, for example, to take some of these arguments being advanced in court against the Second Amendment and clean some of these items up, which is why it's a very risky move what Merrick Garland has done here. It may work. It may somehow undercut the Bruin methodology, but boy, it may backfire entirely and allow for the Supreme Court to clean up a lot of these open questions we've seen in the last year in these various cases across the country and fix it up and strengthen the Bruin methodology. And I could see that happening just as easily as it going the other way. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly the Supreme Court has kind of created some of these issues in and of themselves. I mean, the way that the way that they are constantly referring to law abiding in a lot of the dicta or references to, um, you know, longstanding traditions without explaining using the history and tradition method, how they got to the conclusion that things like felon in possession uh, bans or machine gun bans are longstanding. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot there. I mean, look, to be fair, the Supreme Court, this is only the seventh case they've ever taken on the Second Amendment, right? Yeah. Uh, and one of those got needed. And they needed. haven't needed to. The truth is there was no need for anyone to really get into the Second Amendment until the anti, you know, until people really started trying to go after gun rights. I mean, set aside the 1930s, which, you know, we can talk about. But really, you really see the anti-gun movement in the United States really laser focused trying to actually take away gun rights starting really in the 60s. And that's why when people say, well, why wasn't there Second Amendment blah, blah, earlier? Because the answer was there wasn't needed to. Everyone understood it was an individual right? You can go back to September of 1941, for example, where Congress, right before Pearl Harbor, literally is putting into law that all these requisition acts uh, where you can take an automotive plant and convert it into a tank plant or a cafeteria for teachers and convert it into a cafeteria for soldiers, literally in the law, the Requisition Act of September of, of 1941, they literally exempt the right to keep in arms. You cannot take people's arms away. And that's the Congress in 41. So any suggestion that this was anything other than individual right was never really in dispute until, again, we get into the 60s and 70s and the progressives really start taking over college campuses. And we know all the craziness uh, that has occurred since then in all aspects of American life, uh, not just the right to, to keep and bear arms. Yeah, certainly. And 
Uh, the other thing I want to get into here now, you've covered the, the sort of legal side of this pretty well and uh, some of the potential outcomes. Uh, one thing I want to discuss, too, is this was another area of broad agreement among a lot of the experts that I talked to, is the effect of real politic on this whole thing, right? There's there's an assumption that perhaps, uh, you know, people, justices like Kavanaugh and Roberts, who wrote a concurrence in Bruin that sort of... Uh, re-emphasize the idea that uh, shall issue gun carry permitting is is okay under the standard without actually going through and doing the historical test set out in Bruin to back back that claim up. Um, that Barrett has uh, previously in Cantor, you know, expressed her uh, opinion. Now, obviously, Cantor her opinion is mostly about why nonviolent felons should not be prohibited. But she does briefly talk about why violent uh, uh, felons ought to be. And so perhaps she'll have a, uh, some inclination to want to um, prevent domestic violence um, perpetrators from obtaining firearms. Um, how much of an impact do you expect to see those sorts of considerations to have on the court? Because, you know, one thing I've always talked about with these landmark decisions they've handed down is, you know, they're pretty far behind public opinion in, in most of these cases to this point. Heller was about whether or not you, you know, the practical question was about whether or not you could totally ban handguns, but that by that point in time, almost nobody had a total handgun ban, right? It was DC and, and Chicago basically were the only ones left. Same thing for Bruin in, in a sense, right? It used to be that concealed carry was widely banned, uh, throughout the country. But by the time the court said, you can't do this, you can't uh, at least have subjective measures for issuing permits. It was already the case that politically the country had shifted dra dramatically on the question towards allowing permissive uh, gun carry, concealed carry legislation to be put in place. We haven't seen that same shift on domestic violence, obviously. I think most people agree that domestic Abusers shouldn't have firearms. Um, maybe, you know, maybe there's a different point of view about the specific point on uh, restraining orders and this, this sort of due process protections afforded by them. But, uh, you know, how much do you expect politics to play a role in this? Well, I think there's multiple answers to that. And this is going to get, like I like to say on the channel, right, you know, super geeky about inside Supreme Court world. To begin with, this court has shown a lot of courage, if you think about it. In the last couple of years, what has this court done? First of all, they issued Bruin that knocked out these, these you know, may issue permitting regimes. That was an, you know, just an act of courage to follow the Constitution, uh, despite the mainstream media attacking them relentlessly. They overturned Roe v. Wade. That's a big deal. Right. That is, not, you know, you can disagree with it. You can like it, whatever you want. The fact is it took courage to overturn Roe v. Wade. They knocked out affirmative action in universities. Right. They have, you know, they have done these sorts of things that run against what the mainstream media in D.C. and New York that can buy ink by the by the gallons, as they used to say, uh, attack the Supreme Court relentlessly, relentlessly. Now, so that's the first thing. There is a lot of evidence that this court and I'll, don't forget, of course, the Biden student loan forgiveness program was knocked out. So this court has shown a lot of courage in a lot of areas. That's the first thing they've shown backbone. Now, 
This is where we're going to get geeky. There are aspects of American law that are littered with, littered with left-wing Supreme Court precedents that are very difficult to get rid of. These are barnacles on our constitutional system brought to us by 50 years of judicial activism, starting in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, that for a court today to do things like involving, let's say, the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, uh, to deal with some other aspects of American life, not only would the Supreme Court have to basically reverse course of what the Supreme Court has done in the past, it literally would have to take all those dozens of Supreme Court precedents and sweep them into the trash bin of history, which is very difficult from a practical point of view. Even if it's the right thing to do, there is some stat, you know, there is some practical realities of, for example, the Miranda warnings are, are with us. They're not going anywhere. And that's just where the law is now. And as a matter of precedent, you can't really get rid of it that easily. Now, here is the good news, Stephen, when it comes to our Second Amendment. The great benefit of the American Barrettes not being able to do enough stuff and not having that many Second Amendment cases is this. The United States Supreme Court, when they do their Second Amendment jurisprudence writings, guess what? They're largely writing on a blank slate because unlike, for example, First Amendment jurisprudence, free press jurisprudence, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, Eighth Amendment death penalty jurisprudence, of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens of cases that you have to write around and distinguish and, and say this is not relevant or this is relevant or we got to overturn it. Guess what? In the context of the Second Amendment, Stephen, you don't have any cases like that that are adopted by liberals that you have to distinguish or get out of the way. You're literally writing on a blank slate if you're the Supreme Court involving the Second Amendment because you're really just applying Heller and Bruin to, and then to some degree Caetano in a gun ban case and maybe some aspects of Miller, but not really at this point. So you're really looking at two Supreme Court cases plus Caetano and maybe a little Miller. And that's it. That's it. That is a lot easier to get the Second Amendment right as a matter of originalism. I mean, what did the founding fathers intend by their words? Because there's none of these anti-Second Amendment legal precedents by the Supreme Court that has to be wiped away or distinguished or whatever, which is a which is the reason why I say this is that's why I think, for example, if you look at the Kavanaugh and Roberts decision to not knock out Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in the Alabama case a few weeks ago that a lot of conservatives are upset about. But if you look at what Kavanaugh and Roberts are writing, they said, look, we have like decades of this precedent involving the Voting Rights Act, and we don't really want to blow it up. It's just, you know, because it's there and everybody's been living under it. And they kind of like went along with it. But that is not the sort of thing that Roberts and Kavanaugh uh, are going to have to do in the context of the Second Amendment. So I think that, yes, we can all criticize Supreme Court justices for all sorts of things uh, and their fair game, just like you know our presidents are. But I do ultimately am optimistic. Remember, the Supreme Court did give us Bruin a year ago. And if, if Merrick Garland thinks they're going to somehow screw that up and, and do an about face, um, I don't think that's going to happen. And the only thing I also want to mention, this is another thing that I don't think anybody else has noticed. So I'm going to you know, let you know and your viewers know, um, because the reload is great. And I hope they all subscribe to it, uh, <laughs> is this. There's a case out there that I'm going to look very carefully at. When Amy Coney Barrett was on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, we always talk about Cantor versus Barr, which, of course, is the nonviolent felon case. And that's legit. I talked about her dissent in Cantor versus Barr in Fox News repeatedly during her confirmation hearing. 
Um, but there's another case that uh, Justice Barrett was involved with when she was a judge. And I want to take look carefully at this. This involved Title IX. What is Title IX? Title IX is the federal law that has certain restrictions and rules on universities in various ways, including you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. Now, the reason why this is important, as I recall, Justice Barrett actually issued a favorable rulings and a very pro uh, civil procedural rulings involving people that were accused of wrongdoing on college campuses. And as I recall, she came out with very robust language in favor of you can't punish people, kick them off campus, do things like this, unless you really follow very strict due process rules, because it's otherwise not fair. So I think when it comes to these process concerns, uh, Justice Barrett could play a very big role in discussing, well, yeah, maybe if someone is dangerous, you can take away their gun rights, but how do we prove it and what needs to be shown? And the government can't just wave a magic wand and say, we don't like that person because if they like Donald Trump, we're going to take away their gun rights. No, it has to be a lot more than that. And I think we should look very carefully at Justice Barrett and her jurisprudence because she may play a big role in whether or not a restraining order just rubber stamped by some court out there in the middle of, you know, the middle of the country, if that's enough to cause someone to lose their fundamental textual constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I really do think the process questions are going to be bigger than people assume. I, you know, uh, certainly I don't think anyone wants to see domestic abusers uh, be able to have guns. Um, but I, I also, the, on the other side of that question, the other practical uh, sort of aspect that may play a role in the opposite direction is the is kind of the fact that Rahimi is such a bad guy, or at least accused of being such a bad guy. Uh, that he's very likely to end up in jail and without his gun rights anyway, regardless of what happens with this case, right? Do you think that perhaps will play a role too? Yeah, I mean, I, again, once you start talking Maybe about things, the stakes than, a little bit, I don't for for these justices. Yeah, I don't well, know. look, if you think about it, once if you assume. And I don't think you necessarily we should be assuming. But if you were to assume that the U.S. Supreme Court justices are going to start to look uh, at the newspapers to determine how they're going to rule on the case. Um, if you assume that's what's happening, and I don't think that's really what's going on here, uh, I don't think that's going to happen here, then certainly they would be aware that, let's say, if Mr. Rahimi, um, you know, is convicted and has to, and sentenced to jail for 30 years for some other crime of one of those other shootings. Yeah, I mean, you know, then I guess the Supreme Court would be like, well, we don't have to bend over backwards to make sure Mr. Rahimi is going to prison because he's already in prison um, in some other court or for some other crime for 30 years. So, yeah, I mean, you could conceivably say, well, you know, what's the point? Um, again, I don't think that's what the Supreme Court does. I don't think they look into those things. I think they really take their job as originalists, which means you look at the text, of the Constitution and the relevant history to try to get it right. I don't think they're going to deviate from that because uh, I think they take their jobs very seriously, even when they do things that are unpopular. And again, this court you look, you just have to Google the Supreme Court. You know, you've got AOC and these other, you know, uh, Democrats. They want to pack the court. They want to impeach the justices. They're applying, eth quote unquote, ethical standards uh, that did not exist 20 years ago to them today. All sorts of things. They're doing everything they can to discredit this Supreme Court backwards and forwards. Um, and... Uh, Again, nevertheless, the Supreme Court, this court knocked out the student loan thing for Joe Biden, right? They knocked, they knocked out affirmative action universities. They did Bruin. They did uh, Dobbs. They got rid of Roe. They've done all sorts of things that are very courageous in the, not, notwithstanding the fact they're literally being attacked relentlessly every day in the press um, by 
you know, and it's crazy and they're still doing their job. Again, it's a tough job and they're taking it seriously and I'm still cautiously optimistic. But if you ask me, frankly, Stephen, would I rather see the range case go up or a case like range go to the Supreme Court as the 922 G case as opposed to Rahimi? Yeah, I would say it would be better to have one of those other cases. Uh, but again, uh, that does not mean we're going to lose the Rahimi case. And that does not mean that there's not going to be an advancement of the Second Amendment because, you know, one doesn't know what kind of issues are going to get resolved by the Supreme Court right here and right now in Rahimi that can then be used in other cases. So uh, a lot can happen. And let's you know keep in mind historically, I'll just leave you with a historical note here, Stephen. Everyone talks about Clarence Darrow versus uh, William uh, Jennings Bryan, you know, the, the Scopes monkey trial. People forget that actually the pro-Christian view won the trial. But at the end of the day, sort of the uh, uh, the Clarence Darrow's of the world became famous and uh, everyone thinks he won. But the reality was he lost. So sometimes what happens in the court of law is one thing and what happens in the real world is another thing. And there's a lot of ways for the Second Amendment community to win. And keep in mind, um, I'm sure the Supreme Court is aware that we now have 27 permitless carry states and the number is growing. I mean, Kavanaugh was aware of that oral argument in Bruin. I don't think he's going to forget that now. Mm. OK, well, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on and give us your perspective, your analysis. I think it was very valuable. Uh, you said certainly people can go and find more for you at the four boxes diner, but what else, uh, where else can they go and, and find your work? Well, now, I mean, you know, I do my, I'm doing my videos at the four boxes diner on YouTube and I'm at, I'm now on Twitter. I'm, I'm about ready to celebrate my one year anniversary on Twitter at four boxes diner. So I try to get additional second amendment commentary out there as best I can. Uh, you know, I've got law review articles that I'm trying to work out. I got a couple that are ready to go and I still haven't finalized them. I got to get them out the door. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to work in this area. It takes up a lot of time and there's a lot to say, but this is, a, I will just leave you with this, Stephen. This is a critical moment, a critical moment for Americans and our Second Amendment rights. We are at a critical moment where we these rights are under attack by people that don't like them. They want to disarm Americans. As to why they want to disarm Americans, I'll let you speculate, but they do. They don't want citizens. They want us to be serfs. They want us to do what we're told. And they think it's easier to tell people that are disarmed what to do. And that's probably true. And I think it's very important for everyone out there to realize where we are in American society right now and to make sure our right to keep and bear arms um, is defended at every inch. And there is no compromise. There is no give them an inch because they you give them an inch, they come back and come back and come back. There's never enough until we are all with the wooden kind of guns uh, that you, know, you see people practice with uh, over in Europe on occasion, until we're at that point where we're using plywood cutouts of guns, they're not going to be happy. So I urge everyone to fight hard to protect our constitutional right. Our founding fathers gave us the Second Amendment for a reason, and we should respect that and defend that. Uh, that's what we should do as Americans. All right. Well, I appreciate you being on. We'll have to have you on again in the future. Thanks, Stephen. All right. We're gonna head Always over a pleasure. Our, head over to our news update now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing all right. A uh, little bit hung up in government bureaucracy, but other than <laughs> that, I'm doing okay. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I'm not hung up in government bureaucracy, so that's a plus. That is good. <laughs> yeah, I had... Um, uh, well, so it's just the concealed carry journey, uh, hassle, you know, my second renewal. So I guess I've had the permit for 10 years now. And um, uh, it doesn't auto renew. Like it's the year 2023, but the government still works like it's the year 1973. So uh, naturally, 
instead of just, I don't know, do, doing a background check on me like they could uh, if they wanted to and just renewing my permit automatically or whatever, they make you reapply every five years. I, honest, and look, I know that's not a very high standard for especially for some uh, deep blue states where it's still even after Bruin basically impossible to carry a gun legally as we've covered um, in in multiple instances but but it's also just like a pointless hassle right and I've gotten caught up in um, in, in some of the pitfalls of this process not because the the, the county or the court or the clerk or whoever is trying to screw me over or anything. It's just the nature of these sorts of things. If you felt, uh, so I went to renew, I think probably about a month before I was, uh, my permit was expiring. And so I, you know, didn't have, I don't have a printer because it's the year 2023. So I had to go to, the, you know, the UPS store and, print things out, copy things, um, go to the post office, which again is not a thing I ever do because it's, we are in the year 2023, (laughs) but, uh, did all that stuff. Turned out that I didn't, I think I mentioned this on the previous show, but I didn't fill in my height or my, whether I have tattoos or scars because I don't. Um, but you actually apparently have to write that you have none, um, or else they will send, after you've mailed them the application, they will mail it back to you to fix this issue. Uh, so they did that and I did, I, I fixed that part and sent it back into them. But then I, they sent it back to me again and said that I'd filled out the, uh, this was a mistake that I made, I guess. I, I don't re- recall this, but they said that I put the, for height and weight, I put my height in both sections, I guess. Like I must've put six foot in height and one inch in weight. Um, and so they, they sent it back again and they're like, okay, you just need to, you know, put your weight in here in this little form and send it to us again. You need to get it notarized or whatever, or you can bring it in. And I was at this point, I was like, I should just go there <laughs> instead of trying to do the, through the mail thing. Because if you mess up any detail while mailing things to the government, it'll be like two, another two weeks, three week delay before yeah. you, you even know that you've messed something minor up like this. And so I was like, all right, I'm just going to go there. So I went and, and did that whole thing and uh, talked to the, the clerks. We're very nice people. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I guess it'll probably be another two or three weeks before I get the actual permit back now. Uh, keeping in mind that I have nothing about me or my criminal criminal situation has changed. I have no convictions or uh, any charges or anything like that pending. There's nothing, nothing about me has changed from... Uh, you know, two months ago when I had my permit, um, I still live in the same place. I still have, I've maybe lost a little bit of weight, uh, hopefully, but that's about it. And uh, so, so maybe in three weeks I'll be able to carry again. I mean, I guess I, it's kind of weird. I probably could carry, even though that my Virginia license is expired because I have a Pennsylvania non-resident license, which is recognized in Virginia because Virginia recognizes all licenses. But uh, I haven't been carrying because I don't know how a cop would actually uh, interpret that. I mean, I could open carry, too. That's you don't need a permit for that in Virginia. But I live in northern Virginia and that's probably that wouldn't go over as well. (laughs) Easy way to get the cops caught on you, (laughs) Uh, even if you haven't broken the law. Uh, You know, I can carry in my car uh, without a permit. There's a 
an old uh, attorney general opinion on that you can have a loaded gun in your in, in your in compartments in your car. So I have a safe that I when I'm out, I don't leave the gun in there. But um, you know, when I'm not in the car, I don't leave the gun in there. But regardless, uh, hopefully that'll be settled soon. And then I, because of that, I had to push back my uh, DC appointment to apply for the permit. So it just gets into like the Virginia process sucks, but it's nowhere near some of these other ones. Cause yeah, DC, I need an appointment to apply. I took the class that I needed several months ago, <laughs> but, but the first appointment date was several months out from that when I finished my class. And then when I went, that date was after I'd gotten caught up in the whole mess of renewing my Virginia permit. So I had to push it back again another several months. Uh, so, you know, some point here in the future, I'll be able to legally carry in <laughs> Virginia and D.C., but not not now. <laughs> and it's uh, no fun. So I don't have an update on the, the whole uh, Filster Enigma situation or what I'm doing with my new uh, Sig Sauer P365 uh, X macro because I haven't been carrying them, uh, which it, which does feel weird after a decade of carrying a gun around. Right. <laughs> Which, to your point, it seems like that should be an instant <laughs> approval since it has been a you decade. Would, you would think it just seems like a total waste of time uh, for me and for the county itself to do it this way. Uh, you know, uh, run a background check on me. I don't like I don't care. Uh, you know, figure out that I haven't changed. Nothing about me has changed the five years that I renewed the last time. But why do we have to go through through it like this? I don't I don't understand that part. But that's, I mean, that's government, right? That's, that's not something unique to concealed carry licensing. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. sure. Uh, but what, what do we got in terms of news this week? Sure. So for the uh, newsletter links, uh, we have some news from our friends over at Bearing Arms that Delaware is apparently prepping for their next legislative session to do another big gun control push. Uh, this time, apparently, permit to purchase is higher on the priority list. Their governor has said that that's something that they're going to pursue. So we'll have to see if that's uh, that's going to be coming to Delaware. Yeah, interestingly, I think that has a better chance of surviving scrutiny than, you know, the assault weapons ban they just passed, for instance, uh, mainly because Kavanaugh had that concurrence in Bruin where he said concealed carry permitting uh, of the shall issue nature that what I'm dealing with in Virginia right now uh, is presumptively constitutional uh, with, and with carry and ownership being on the same level now as far as protected rights go under the second amendment uh, it sort of implies that uh, permit to purchase could be constitutional as well as long as it's you know a shall issue system where it's not reliant on you know government officials subjective judgments um, but yeah we'll, we'll have to see if delaware gets there and what the ch court challenges look like after that yeah and i'm sure there will be court challenges if that does pass i'm sure um, another link from the newsletter comes from The Hill. Uh, House Democrats launched sort of a scheme to try to force a floor vote on a, some gun control bills, including a so-called assault weapon ban again, um, and using something called a discharge position, petition, which essentially forces a bill out of committee uh, via a vote. Uh, but that scheme went nowhere. Uh, <laughs> the, the headline, in fact, says that the, their effort fizzles out. So that's not going to happen. They're not going to get a vote on the record which isn't really much of a surprise given the partisan split in that chamber. Yep. And then last link, we have uh, Philly, uh, some news out of Philly. They're back trying to sue 
uh, gun companies, this time famous ghost gun, so-called ghost gun maker Polymer 80. Uh, they're attempting to sue that company for negligence for apparently or allegedly fueling uh, gun crime in the city. They say that a lot of the guns recovered in crime happen to all come from Polymer 80, which, you know, it's one of the biggest manufacturers of home-built firearms. So mm-hmm. we'll have to see where, where that goes. Yeah. Um, classic media report on a on a court case too, where there's no link to the lawsuit. It doesn't even tell you where this is yeah. being filed. Uh, Brady, I think Giffords was Brady or Giffords. Giffords. Yeah. Giffords is uh, backing this lawsuit, which is not surprising, but uh, they had a similar one in LA that was actually successful and Paul Meridi had to pay $5 million to settle that and agree not to sell their, uh, their homemade gun kits anymore. So, um, but I would imagine that's because California has, very different laws than Pennsylvania. So we'll we'll have to see how this all shakes out. I think DC had a similar case as well. So there has been some uh, success on this front for gun control advocates and and cities um, that they haven't seen in other areas, like trying to sue traditional gun makers. Um, So I would expect to see more of these lawsuits coming down the line as well. I think that's uh, right. That actually moves into our next... Yeah, story, right? Because we had a ruling on Biden's ghost gun uh, ban, right? Yep, uh, we sure did. So the same judge, the same federal district judge, Reed O'Connor, that's been previously handing out sort of piecemeal rulings against specific manufacturers, basically blocking Biden's rule, officially vacated the rule. uh, And you wrote a big piece about how he essentially said that the rule is null and void. Uh, So that's Mm -hmm. obviously a huge deal and a big blow to President Joe Biden's agenda. That's one of his primary executive orders on guns that he enacted. Yeah, it's absolutely a major development in in the courts on uh, this front. And I think it's something that also casts a shadow, a further shadow over the pistol brace ban uh, as it's being scrutinized in the Fifth Circuit right now as well. Uh, So uh, you had the the bump stock rule, bump stock ban was tossed uh, that was a Trump era ban, but the Biden administration has been defending it in court and has kind of used it as their template for these other executive actions. Um, and now you've had the ghost gun ban tossed as well. And I would expect that the pistol brace ban is going to be next because these are all sort of based on the same essential logic and the rulings against them are probably going to be based on the exact same uh, legal theories, right? That basically the ATF just doesn't have the power to do this stuff that they, uh, they went, uh, beyond what's allowed by the administrative procedures act. And also that they, um, have been inconsistent over the years on how these devices should all be regulated, uh, which also brings into play the rule of lenity, because if the government can't figure out whether or not something is a crime, then basically, you can't expect citizens to either. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to a, another big story. Uh, we have a study out of Rutgers University um, that sort of lent academic credence to something that's long been thought to be common knowledge in the gun world, uh, where we now have empirical evidence, at least, that many gun owners, at least a, a sizable percentage of them, don't feel comfortable divulging their gun ownership to researchers, pollsters, et cetera. So that's, you know, that's a big deal to have that actually show up in empirical research. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. It's a really uh, significant effect, too, if you look at their numbers. Um, the, basically, the way they 
calculated this because obviously obviously like how would how do you figure out that someone's not telling you that they're a gun owner that they're basically lying to you about it uh and and uh, you know to be completely fair it's not you're not going to come up with a, a perfectly reliable way to do that so people should take all of this with a grain of salt but basically they put together a profile of what they think uh, a gun owner would look like based on things like their where they live you know whether it's rural urban suburban their the race of the person the sex the um and then uh, you know a bunch of psychological factors like their tolerance for uncertainty so you know how uh obviously people don't like uncertainty generally but there does seem to be apparently in research uh the a disconnect between your non-gun owner and your gun owner, which makes sense if you think about it, right? People who own guns tend to want to be prepared for uh, for anything, basically. That's one of the reasons you might own a gun, for sort of self-protection, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, so they took these factors that they determined would show that somebody is probably a gun owner, and they put those against the... Uh, the people who said they don't own guns and they found that uh, of people who matched 50% of the indicators that they picked out for gun owners, uh, that like 45% of people who said no meet that criteria, which means that potentially almost half of the people who said they don't own a gun do own a gun. Uh, or at the very least, they, what they're really saying is that they fit the profile of somebody who would own a gun. Um, and, and so they thought that they actually thought that was kind of a remarkable finding that the number sounded too high to them. And so they also did a more conservative uh, sort of gate, which was a 75 percent. You know, if, you, if the person hit 75 percent of the indicators that they picked out for gun owners, then then they'd count them as somebody who's probably not being forthcoming about owning a gun. And they still found a significant effect. It was still like 10%, um, which would move, you know, the, the their overall finding in the initial poll was that 34% of people self-identified as gunners, which is pretty well in line with what you see from Gallup and Pew and Associated Press and these other major pollsters. And even with that, that higher threshold, the more conservative estimate, that bumps the number all the way up to 40%. Um, so pretty remarkable study right there, I think, because it, it does go to this point that a lot of gun owners and, and gun rights advocates have made for, for years, which is that people uh, are probably underreporting how, whether they own guns or not. They're just, they right. just don't share that information with, with researchers or pollsters. And we've kind of seen that reflected in the polls, right? They've been relatively static over the last few years when they ask, hey, you know, how many Americans own a gun or have a gun in their home? When you know, we've covered, there's been a pretty, at least during the pandemic, a sizable uptick in first time gun owners that were, you know, picked up in various studies and various polls. And yet that number didn't change. And that sort of explains perhaps why that, that number has been flat over time, because there's just X percent of gun owners just don't tell people that they own guns. I mean, the number's gone up a little bit, especially if it, you brought it out to people who uh, report having a gun in the home rather, rather than, because that number is higher, to be fair. Like that's, yeah. Uh, traditionally you get around a quarter will say that they own a gun themselves, but somewhere in the mid four, you know, low to mid forties will say, uh, that there's a gun in their home. And, and I do think that part of that probably explains this disconnect because, um, 
one of the things that they used as an explanation for why this is happening uh, or put forward as a potential explanation was that, you know, some people might be married to someone who's a gun owner. And so they'll match a lot of the same identifiers as what a gun owner would be because they probably have a gun in the home, but they don't consider it their gun. Right. Uh, and so that's where you might get some of the disconnect uh, that adds, uh, you know, so that because the final number, right, that I just described, at least in the more conservative uh, approach is closer to that gun in the home number that you see from a lot of these pollsters. Uh, I think it, the Associated Press had it up to 46 percent in their most recent poll. Um, and, and that has shown more of a trend up than the personal gun ownership. But, I mean, you know, there's a lot of reasons that they put forward. Uh, for why people might not be willing to to identify themselves as gun owners in these kinds of polls, um, and if you lose the the fifty percent gate, the 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 looser gate, it it, it popped the number all the way up to like sixty percent. <laughs> so because uh, it was like half of the people who said no actually do own guns under this. Now the researchers said that probably identifying a lot of people who don't who who still don't actually own guns, but just fit the profile of somebody who, who does, um, to be fair. Like, I don't want to get too far out uh, outside of reality with some of these numbers, um, but it is fascinating. And, um, and I, you know, we interviewed one of the, the authors of the study. So I, she was pretty forthcoming talking about this and some of the implications and especially for researchers themselves, because, uh, you know, if you're not capturing how many people actually own guns when you're going to do gun research, you're trying to connect gun ownership with all, any anything really, you know, suicide rate or, um, you know, violence or self-defense or whatever you're trying to study. If you can't get a reliable uh, measure of how many people own firearms in, in the population you're studying, then your research is much less reliable, right? Yeah. So nope. Fascinating uh, implications for sure. Uh, but yeah. Speak, speaking of research, that takes us to the, our last story. Um, we have some new research on homicide rates, and we actually have mm. some at least early indications that there's some positive news. Uh, homicide rates appear to be on the decline and in a pretty substantial fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you had a good piece on this and that actually even better analysis piece, I think. But the base, basic story is that there's a, a really widely uh cited data analyst um, named Jeff Asher, who has looked at, uh, he's he's got a data set of the, hundred, the top 100 cities that are publicly releasing their crime data. Um, and, and he's using that to uh, make predictions about uh, the overall murder rate in the country. And effectively what he's found is that it, it's dropped significantly, um, as much as 10%. From last year through the first, you know, six months of 2023, right. we've seen this huge decline. Uh, he said that, you know, if the trend holds, that would be the largest decline in history um, for for murder rate. And uh, it's pretty fascinating because it comes right after we've seen this this murder spike. We've been experiencing this really high level of murder in the United States, uh, getting us back towards the sort of very bad days of the 1980s and 90s, and um, perhaps that's over now is, I guess, the indication, right? That's right. Yeah. And he cautioned, to be fair, he did caution that, as you pointed out, it's only we're only midway through 2023. We don't know mm -hmm. 
if this will hold yet. Um, it's also just a sample of 100 cities, so you can't draw too broad of conclusions based off of just that small sample. Right. But and we, said, uh, to be fair, too, we've, we've talked about in the past on the show about the FBI's numbers and the big problem with them post-2020 right. was that they uh, have changed their reporting system. They're getting fewer uh, police departments actually reporting numbers to them. They've lost like 5,000 departments, which is really bad, but they do still have like, uh, I think 11,000 overall. So the, the, the FBI's data set, as much as we've criticized that for being incomplete, um, you know, keep in mind that we're only talking about a, a hundred or so uh, cities and their departments reporting here. So it has the same sort of potential limitations. That's right. Yeah. The caveats still apply, but that being said, He's obviously capturing something with this. This is police data. This is official data, um, which, you know, draws broader implications for politics, gun politics. You know, you've seen crime and guns become sort of an issue again in ways that are reminiscent of the 90s when things were, you know, kind of at their height. And, yep. you know, as I kind of dove into in my analysis piece, you have to wonder if maybe if murder trend continues to go down and the American people perceive that. You know, could we potentially see the gun issue and the crime issue recede in their minds as well? Um, that's yeah. obviously something that could potentially happen, but it also depends on how the American people actually perceive this, if they actually pick up on the fact that the data is moving in this direction. And as you talk about at length in your analysis piece that people, I think, should go and, and read for more on this, uh, there's also the issue of what is highly publicized uh, gun violence, which are mass shootings, which are still at a uh, record pace from everything we've seen, regardless of what, yep. which uh, measure you look at. Um, we've talked on the show, obviously, in the past a lot about the different ways that, uh, the different counts that exist out there and their strengths and weaknesses. But regardless of which one you, see, you look at, the mass shooting issue is still um, at, at really all-time high right now, um, even as we're seeing perhaps overall murder drop. Uh, so how that will play out is another significant factor uh, in all of this. But I do think that your your analysis piece is extremely valuable in this area and people should go check it out. And to do that, they'll have to get a Reload membership, of course, if you don't already have one. Um, so head over to the reload.com today to check out our membership options. Um, you, will, In addition to getting access to Jake's latest analysis piece, you will, of course, get access to hundreds of other pieces of analysis that you won't find anywhere else. You'll also get this podcast a day early, as well as an opportunity to appear on the show. We have another member segment scheduled uh, for the near future here. So I'm looking forward to that as well. We had one last week, but uh, you'll also get access to our Sunday members newsletter. And um, yeah, I mean, you'll get the ability to comment on the website as well. So you get a lot more if you sign up. It also helps support our reporting. This is how we make our, our living. This is what keeps us going. So uh, yeah, the memberships are are quite important. I think they're valuable, but they are also a big way of supporting the reporting that we do. So check that out today. But that's all we've got for this week. Make sure you like, subscribe on YouTube, share this with uh, any friends and family you think might be interested, and leave a review or rating wherever you're listening to us at. So really, that also helps a lot if you're not able to uh, pick up a membership at this point. Thank you guys so much. We will see you again real soon.